Hello, I'm Kate Jabot and welcome to SITREP, where each week we analyse the key defence and security issues shaping the UK and the world. This week, military personnel are to carry out rapid coronavirus testing in Liverpool in the government's first mass testing pilot. What impact will they have? It's a, it's a great idea that at least we'll know who can isolate and who can't isolate. In good time, uh, this has got to be a way forward, really. We speak to a former army commander about how the military are being used in the pandemic. We ask how America's future defence and foreign policies will change depending on who ends up in the Oval Office. It's clear that we're winning enough states to reach 270 electoral votes needed to win the presidency. This is rampant corruption and it can't happen. And how different will remembrance be this year as England goes into another national lockdown? We hear about an online research tool that connects people to remembrance in their local area. We're really determined at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission that even in these difficult times, we will continue to remember those who gave their lives. This is Zidrep. But first, the Defence Secretary says the armed forces are key to the rollout of the UK's first pilot of mass coronavirus test and trace operations. Rapid tests will be on offer to everyone in Liverpool with or without symptoms. The government hopes if it's successful, it could be rolled out in other areas before Christmas. Defence Secretary Ben Wallace says up to 3,000 troops will be involved in the trial. From Friday, you will see significant numbers of military personnel in Liverpool helping Liverpool local authorities deliver uh, test and tracing operations. There will be between 2,500 to 3,000 troops involved in that, with a number of testing stations, about 47 we think, but that could uh, fluctuate. Uh, and they'll be delivering a whole range of issues. It will be uh, delivered through a brigade uh, headquarters and indeed through uh, soldiers from right across the United Kingdom. Uh, and they'll be there delivering things like logistics, planning, command and control, and making sure that such a very large-scale test, track and trace operation is done in a way that the military are used to and, and, and in a way that can deliver at pace and at scale. And that's the big difference from previously, is that this has got to be done at pace. We're into a new lockdown, uh, and that's why the armed forces, whose sort of middle name is resilience, middle name is about delivering at speed, uh, is why they're so key to this next stage. Well, people on the streets of Liverpool gave their reactions. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a great idea that at least we'll know who can isolate and who can't isolate. In good time, uh, this has got to be a way forward, really. People are more concerned about following them themselves. I think it's not, they don't need the, um, necessarily need the armed forces to enforce it. I think people take it on themselves. Yes, I do. Something needs to happen. Um, good to get to the bottom of it somewhere. My child goes to school and obviously I'm pregnant as well. I feel like, I don't know, I just feel like it's not going to work. I've got relatives who live outside the city region but are still in the Merseyside borough. So it's a bit of, yeah, a bit reassuring but not totally. Liverpool's Mayor Joe Anderson says there will be testing points across the city. This testing programme will enable us to actually free up people to actually go back into work sooner. And we're going to be using it in our schools as well, which also means that we can control the virus uh, in, in schools, especially in our secondary schools. Well, earlier I spoke to retired Lieutenant General James Bashel, former Commander Home Command. He told me the military have the logistics skills to do this at short notice. I actually, without belittling it, I think it's actually quite straightforward. Uh, I mean, the military is used, particularly the army, 
of moving mass to a decisive point. It's sort of what we do in operations. And busing you know, several hundreds of people from Wiltshire to Liverpool, putting them into temporary accommodation, feeding them, training them, and then giving them the right protective equipment to wear is actually, I think, a fairly straightforward operation for the military. And it will also involve a lot of liaison with the public. What kind of training are they likely to get help with with this health health issue? So the the military are going to be uh, given help and training in interfacing with the public. And it's quite a straightforward package, I understand. But it just helps them to understand those members of the public who perhaps may be a little bit more tricky or, uh, you know, how best to deport themselves in in front of the public eye. And and if this pilot is successful and rolled out in other areas, what impact is that likely to have on the capacity of the armed forces? I I don't think it's going to have an impact. I mean, you know, I think the most important issue for the military or for people looking at this is that we need to remember that the military act as a guaranteed reserve for the nation. And this sort of operation in our own country is absolutely what the military uh, is able to deliver. They are an organised, disciplined force, cohesive, that can be used at relatively short notice. And I don't think further operations of this nature will necessarily stretch the military. So if this is to become perhaps a regular and sustained demand, that is perfectly acceptable and and doable for the armed forces? Well, I'm not sure it's necessarily totally acceptable. I I mean, in in an ideal world, this would be a task undertaken by the civilians, by, or by a civilian force. This, the military are only doing it now because we can, and we're the only people who can do it at short notice. So that the ideal world is that we hand this off as soon as we can to uh, civilian organisations who can pick it up and take it from us. And of course, there would become a breaking point if this was uh, had to be delivered at, at scale, you know, in a short period of time. But I don't think that's likely. I suppose what I'm getting at is if this pandemic is going to last for some time, do we have to look at other solutions long term and not always rely on the military? Yes, I think absolutely. But the, the, the necessity right now is to do something quickly. And there is only the military that's available. And I, and I don't think it's affordable or a good use of, of taxpayers' money to, to establish another similar capability at, um, at, at readiness, such as the military. Uh, I think the military can do this first bit now and then hand it off. Did you think the armed forces have been used in the most effective way so far? Yes, I think they are. I think they're being used for the skill sets that they provide, which, as I said, is, is a, you know, a disciplined, cohesive force at, at, at readiness to move. Also, with a degree of expertise, such as, say, 8th Force Field Engineer uh, brigade headquarters, which has been now moved up to London, or elements of them, to co-locate with DHSC to, to help with their planning. So I think in terms of logistics, planning, delivery, you know, the particular skill sets, the niche skill sets of the military, I think have been well used. That was Lieutenant General James Bashel. Well, listening to that is our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Christopher, there have been calls for the military to do more. Looks like those calls have been answered then. I think there's an attempt to answer those calls. Uh, and sometimes the, the so-called calls are a bit sort of you know, bring in the military, let them get on with it, etc. And that's not really what's happening here. I'm interested in the fact that the word that was used is resilience. And right at the beginning of this, when we first got into the whole business of looking at nightingales and hospitals, etc. I remember one, one of the military uh, responses to this is that the military is seen as resilience 
And so that's the reassurance that the public will be far more relaxed, far more reassured when they see the military in 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 uniform doing the sort of jobs which at the moment people who are doing it appear to be called up to do it just because mm. they, they can do it. You know, as the general said, stick people on buses from, from Wiltshire, drive them up to uh, Lancashire, drive them up to Liverpool, give them accommodation and food overnight, pretty simple, simple thing to do. But from the public's point of view, that looks reassuring. Christopher Leake, stay with us. Usually it takes a matter of hours after an election before graceful concession and victory speeches, but not this year. Instead, Joe Biden urges states to count every vote, while Donald Trump tweets they are trying to steal the election. We are going to continue the lawsuit here. We're going to bring a second one, and then we're going to bring a federal lawsuit. And we're going to take a very good look at whether we bring this nationally. We certainly are going to bring it here and in Wisconsin. Quite possibly, we'll do a national lawsuit and really expose the corruption of the Democrat Party. It's clear that we're winning enough states to reach 270 electoral votes needed to win the presidency. I'm not here to declare that we've won. But I am here to report, when the count is finished, we believe we will be the winners. Well, our reporter James Hurst has been following events for us with the huge caveat, James, that by the time people listen to this on air or on the podcast, everything could have changed. Uh, just reminders what one candidate needs to become president. So y- you heard Joe Biden mention that magic number of 270. This election is not about winning the most votes. American presidential elections are about winning states. And in most of those states, it's then winner takes all for what they call the electoral college votes. Essentially, each state is worth a number of points dependent on size. So California, huge, huge population, 55 points. Alaska, big place, small population, three points, three electoral college votes. Pennsylvania in the middle with 20. There's a total of 538 points up for grabs and that magic number to get over the line if you can get 270 of those points then you become president-elect here's the thing to remember though despite the usual swift result we get in the u.s it's always projections the certified counts always take a long time it's even longer in a really closely fought contest and as you heard from rudy giuliani there you know the trump campaign are preparing and issuing legal actions. This is Mm. going to drag on until we get an absolute answer, possibly for weeks. So, James, what do we know about what will be top of Joe Biden's in-tray for defence if he wins through? I I think top of his in-tray actually is probably something that's in common with whoever wins uh, top of the in-tray. Certainly militarily, there are decisions to take about the future of the Afghan military campaign and the military campaign against the Islamic State terror group. I think, you know, there's a sense that the style may be very different from Joe Biden, but actually the substance might not be so different. Uh, What he will be focusing on, though, is also, uh, as he sees it, repairing relations with allies, reassuring allies, reassuring NATO and shifting back to a more traditional approach to the world. 
Mm, and the same question, James, for Donald Trump, if he retains the presidency. So again, Afghan uh, Islamic State. I, I think, you know, you can expect certainly a continuation and perhaps doubling down on that, that economic war with China. His, his mission, as he says, to destroy Iran economically. I think, you know, we'll, we've also seen Donald Trump start a reshaping of the US military, taking thousands of troops out of Germany, putting some of them elsewhere in Europe, but taking some of them home. I think, you know, that could be more of what what he's looking to do. All right, James Hurst, thanks for that. Well, we're joined now by Dr. Karen von Hippel, Director General of the Defence Think Tank RUSI. She was Chief of Staff to General John Allen, Special Envoy under President Obama for the Global Coalition to Counter Islamic State. Uh, Karen, good to speak to you today. Uh, still up in the air as we record this, but looking at the defence and security implications, their different strategies are summed up perhaps in a way by the contrasting taglines of their campaigns. Donald Trump's America First versus Joe Biden's Restoring American leadership. Yes, I mean, that's actually a very good way to distinguish it because it could be on issues uh, that James was talking about, whether it's Iran or China, that overall, the well, not Iran, I would say for China, for example, the you know, Biden presidency would push back hard on China, but how they do it would be different. They would work with allies and partners. They realize you can't uh, have a China strategy succeed on your own. And that's an error Trump made all along. In many ways, he was good to push back on China publicly. He was the first U.S. president to do so uh, in this era of, of China emerging as a superpower. But but you can't do China on your own. And in terms of results, uh, looking at North Korea, President Trump did at least get the North Korean leader Kim Jong-un to sit down and talk, didn't he? Well, I mean, that was considered a, a failure by many other North Korea watchers because, of course, you don't give the leader a treat of being with the U.S. president unless they make some sort of concessions. And he didn't really follow through on any of the promises that he made to President Trump. I personally don't have a problem with sitting down with a head of state early on in a negotiation. It could be used as a teaser rather than the traditional build up through the more junior people until you get to the top, until you sign a deal. But the problem with Trump was that he never follows through on any of these issues. I mean, that's really the, the tragedy of Trump. I mean, in many ways, you could say disruption wasn't a bad thing. Many of these institutions like mm. NATO and the UN needed reform. But if you're going to blow something up, you need to replace it with something. And that never happened. Yeah, you, you say he doesn't follow through things. And you mentioned NATO, but you could credit perhaps President Trump for actually encouraging other countries to, to, to pay more into their defense spending as a result of the pressure he's put on the organization. Uh, you know, every president... Republican and Democrat has done that for the last 20, 30 years. So, and it's not entirely clear he's been that much more successful than previous presidents have. I mean, I think the Germans still are not where they need to be and other countries are not necessarily up there. Yeah, maybe one or two were so worried about the U.S. withdrawing from NATO that they saw it as an existential threat, but they still have to go back to their own publics and convince them that they need to spend more money on defense. And these days with pandemic and recession, and, you know, everybody writing blank checks. I don't know if it's going to be so easy to do that anymore. Well, Christopher Lee is still with us. Christopher, how much does what happens in the US impact on UK defence? It impacts in as much that the British defence is very aware of American opinion, but it doesn't actually bring extra money in from the Treasury into the defence budget. Um, and that's the realism of it. So what America tells um, uh, the British to do 
they can't do it unless they've got the money and in the inclination and at the moment especially with britain trying to figure out what its its foreign policy is going to be for the next five years maybe ten years um, and it's got to then say to the MOD, right, now you've got to give as an indication how you can guarantee that militarily. That makes it even more complicated. Well, stay with us both. Afghanistan is one of the key issues facing whoever wins the American presidency. This week, students in the Afghan capital, Kabul, demonstrated outside the city's university after Islamist militants killed 22 people on the campus and wounded many more. The Taliban have denied responsibility and Islamic State says it launched the assault. But students called for an end to peace talks with the Taliban and the resignation of politicians. Karen, you worked on countering Islamic State in Iraq and Syria in your previous role. But, but how widespread is their ideology now in Afghanistan? Look, at the global level, it's still a force to be reckoned with. We just saw three attacks in France. We saw the attacks in Austria recently. So... Uh, uh, you know, whoever can declare victory on the so-called Islamic State is wrong. And I do think that would be an era, area where if Biden is to win, that he will be able to push back and reassemble and work with coalition partners in a more profound way. But it's certainly uh, the ideology is out there. Whatever we call the organization, it will be with us with, for generations. And Christopher, the peace talks have stalled. Do you think they can be brought back on track? Um, yes, they can. Um, and they can because, by and large, most people involved in the peace talks um, ha have an interest in, in, in getting them on track. The problem is who has an interest in the people who have an interest. And there you have the difficulty of all the peace talks in, in that part of the world, like in other parts of the world. It is a question of who has the final say, who has the final influence on the people who are actually at the uh, at the peace talks and who sign something and then say yes we will guarantee it and it's the guarantee of peace talks when they become something much more complicated to actually keep going. And Karen do you think the planned US troop withdrawal will go ahead whoever wins the election in the US? Yeah it's an interesting question because as you probably recall when Obama decided to surge in Afghanistan Biden was against it uh, but I do think if Biden is to win and he, you know, he'll do obviously a review and a scrub of Afghanistan, even if he wants to pull troops out, he would not leave allies in the lurch. It would be done in close consultation to try to figure out how to continue supporting the Afghan government, how to continue to support security guarantees. It could be a NATO increase in forces with the U.S. very much behind that. So uh, it's, 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 you know, it's still too early to say what he will do in that area. Dr. Karen von Hibble, good to speak to you today. Thank you very much for your time. Christopher, stay with us. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. Military personnel have been taking part in rehearsals this week ahead of the Remembrance Sunday Parade at the Cenotaph. Smaller numbers will be taking part due to the COVID pandemic. The UK's National Memorial to the Fallen was originally only intended to stand for a week. But a hundred years on, the Cenotaph remains the focal point for remembrance, as Rosie Layden reports. Cleaners hard at work, making sure this national memorial looks its best for Remembrance Day. What was first conceived as temporary has become a permanent tribute to Britain's war dead. The Cenotaph has its origins in the terrible loss of life and the terrible grief and bereavement this caused after the Great War. Dr Stephen Brindle is a senior historian at English Heritage. A great many of the soldiers who were killed um, had no grave at all. Their bodies were never found. 
and all of the rest were buried overseas. So the grieving families in Britain had nowhere to go and visit to remember the dead. The cenotaph arose from the crying need for a place of national commemoration. The cenotaph was originally designed by the architect Edwin Lutyens as a temporary structure which would be taken down after a week. But it proved so popular, a stone replacement was built in 1920. Lutyens' cenotaph, of course, is here in a public place in the street in the heart of Westminster. Uh, and it seemed to fulfil that commemorative function um, in a much more public way than the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier, which is inside a church. And over a million and a half people came to visit it. Huge numbers of them left wreaths, and within two weeks, a great field of wreaths and flowers accompanied it. The design was simple and abstract, so the memorial could resonate with people of all religions and none, who'd all lost loved ones during the Great War. Lutyens' cenotaph was the most influential here, in, in showing how a memorial could be timeless and could represent those values of honour, loyalty, duty, could represent sorrow and pride. All those emotions could be projected onto a monument which is in itself very simple. What it represents, of course, is an empty tomb. Uh, the section at the top is the tomb, the sarcophagus, adorned with wreaths on top of a tall pylon which lifts it high into the air so it can be seen from a distance. So the name cenotaph means empty tomb, an empty tomb to stand for all of the dead. After the Second World War, a new inscription was added to commemorate these dates as well. And today, the cenotaph is seen as the national focus for remembrance for all those killed in conflict. Rosie Layden reporting there. Well, this year, many with many of us staying at home, the Commonwealth War Graves Commission has launched Our War Graves, Your History to help people find out about war graves and memorials in their local area. Earlier, I spoke to Max Dutton, who is a heritage interpretation officer and historian with the commission. This is going to be a Remembrance Sunday like none of us have ever experienced before. Um, and with official events being cancelled uh, all over the country um, in line with, with government advice. And we're really determined at the Commonwealth War Graves Commission that even in these difficult times, we will continue to remember those who gave their lives during the two world wars. Um, I'm sure you, you know of our work around the world. We, we commemorate the 1.7 million service personnel who died during the First and the Second World Wars. And you probably know our sites around the world from, of course, the magnificent Tietvel Memorial on the Somme to the heartbreaking Tynecott at, uh, at Passchendaele or perhaps even the, the cemeteries in Normandy. Um, but you might be surprised to learn that right here in Great Britain, there are 300,000 First and Second World War service personnel commemorated at 12,000 locations by the Commonwealth War Graves Commission. And this Remembrance Sunday, we would like you to go on to our website, cwgc.org, and discover some of these remarkable cemeteries and memorials that are probably right on your very doorstep. This is quite an interesting digital offering you have here. Can you just tell us a bit more about it, how it works and what, what there is? 
So as I say, there's, there's 12,000 locations all across Great Britain where the Commonwealth War Graves Commission uh, looks after graves or memorials and we've created an online hub where uh, everybody can go online and see some of the highlights of our sites, some of our larger sites, some of our architectural masterpieces like the, the Portsmouth Naval Memorial or the Runnymede Air Forces Memorial, but they can also use our cemeteries nearby function to find local war graves to them. So obviously we have big cemeteries all across the country where there's, you know, our biggest one is Brookwood in Surrey where there's uh, over 5,000 graves, but actually the majority of graves that we look after are, are in their ones and twos and they're probably less than five miles away from wherever you are in Great Britain and we want people to go online, use our new website, find those graves and go and if they can, it is safe um, uh, in line with government guidance, perhaps even go along and visit those graves. Uh, and Remembrance, of course, being observed this week, you have quite an interesting idea about how people can, can remember with a new initiative regarding stars. Yes, we will be, uh, we will be launching uh, a, new, uh, a new initiative where people will be able to name stars in the sky after uh, war casualties, um, just because we are in our darkest uh, a darkest time right now uh, doesn't mean that we should be letting the light of remembrance go out and what better way to ensure that those who gave their lives for the freedoms which we uh, enjoy today uh, are remembered than naming a star after them in the night sky. If somebody does want to actually dedicate a star to a veteran what do they have to do? Uh, it's a really simple process you just need to go on the Commonwealth War Graves Commission's website, um, log in and uh, name uh, the star that you would like after that individual, and it will appear on a virtual night sky. That was Max Dutton there from the CWGC. Finally, let's return to retired Lieutenant General James Bashel, who we spoke to earlier, this time in his capacity as National President of the Royal British Legion. He also told us Remembrance will be very different this year due to COVID. For us in the Legion, it's a difficult year. We, we, we're not able to deliver the poppy appeal in the way we want to do it with the, the presence on the streets. Uh, the, uh, the Festival of Remembrance, which we hold annually at the Royal Albert Hall, uh, this year we pre-recorded it and we did that last week. So it will go out on the BBC, BBC One, Saturday evening. Um, sadly, we haven't got all an audience and several of the participants are missing, particularly all the members of the Royal Family although the Prince of Wales and the Duchess of Cornwall do, uh, do, do play a role in the actual show itself. Uh, and then on the Cenotaph, you know, we will miss having the large veteran march pass, which I think for a lot of people who come to London, it's the highlight of, of, that, of that parade. So it'll be rather empty on Whitehall on Sunday, but we will, mm. we will have, the, have the, the, the event and we will, you know, I will certainly lay a wreath on behalf of the, of the veterans. And when you lay that wreath, who will you be thinking of when you bow your head? I've, I thought this year, I, I want to remember three uh, soldiers who served with a, in A Company 3 Power. Um, Lance Corporal Stephen Wilson, Private Don McCauley and Private Matthew Marshall, who were all murdered by the IRA in November uh, 1989. And whilst I wasn't serving myself in A Company, I was a young officer in battalion at the time and I attended two of the funerals and they were the first soldiers I knew who had been killed in operational service and that their 
their deaths had a, had a huge impact on me because it brought home the reality of my profession. And I think, you know, the grief of the families at the funerals and the anger and the sadness all made me realize the enormity of what, you know, command means for, 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 for officers in, in the Her Majesty's Armed Forces. And I think while some may say we move on, we get over things, I have seen in the years since many families who have never got over the loss of a son, brother, daughter, or husband. And I think every anniversary, both Remembrance Sunday and obviously in this instance, it's the 18th of November, is probably a very painful reminder. So the three soldiers now, had they not been murdered, would all be in their mid fifties. And, um, and I will think of them on Sunday, you know, lest we forget. Christopher Lee, um, this will be a unique Remembrance Sunday in many ways, won't it? It is, and it's important, for example, that some of the people that are, are, that are only re remembered formally uh, by now, uh, people you think in RAF, but most certainly in, in the Battle of the Atlantic, um, uh, Merchant Navy, Merchant Navy ratings, uh, operatives, deck officers, deck apprentices, they were forgotten. And now they're not forgotten. And then people at last are, are remembering 39,000 or whatever the figure is now are remembered uh, on uh, Remembrance Sunday. And is there anyone in particular, any individual especially that you will be thinking of on Remembrance Sunday? 39,000 of them. <laughs> Christopher, thank you. That is it from me, Kate Chabot, and from Christopher Lee. Thank you to all of our guests. Don't forget, you can always get in touch with us on Twitter. We're at BFBS SITREP. And while you're online, why not subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode in future at bfbs.com slash SITREP. For now, though, thanks for listening. Bye-bye.